Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and guest artists for Sins of Sinister Number 1. It is time for your next Weekly Dose of X, your Weird Science X-Men podcast, a proud member of the Weird Science family of podcasts. My name is Jason, and speaking with me from the precise remote corner of Peru, where I predicted he'd be, is our pal Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Wonderful. Glad to hear it. It's been a, a, a good week here in uh, X-Men comics. We've got two books to talk about today, Sabretooth and the Exiles, number three, which is the middle issue of a series that we weren't so crazy about, kind of on the fence. But then there's Sins of Sinister, number one, the, the kickoff issue to this event that we have gotten pretty hyped over. And I just used the word hyped out loud, and I, I kind of cringed a little bit, but I, I think it actually counts. So I was excited where, for it, and I still am excited for it. So, spoilers. Spoiler alert. Yeah, we, we like <laughs> Mr. Sinister. We like Kieran Gillen. We uh, maybe, maybe, we sometimes may give him a little bit too much credit, give him more slack than we might give another writer, but I, I think he's earned it. He's earned the benefit of the doubt that we do think he's taking us somewhere interesting. Okay, before we get into those books, I do have a dark web update for you, for all you dark web fans out there. Uh, the update is Ben Riley. AKA Chasm, AKA clone of Peter Parker, he's he's now the king of limbo. <laughs> that's it. I mean, the, that's the mystical Sorry realm. Laugh, the mystical okay. realm limbo, not the Trinidadian party game with the dancing and the broomstick, the actual mystical realm. <laughs> now, there's one final event, excuse me, one final issue of that event coming up next week. Will King Chasm, that, that's what they call him, King Chasm, will he remain as ruler of limbo? I'll let you know next time. So just. I probably shouldn't care, but I, I do care. Okay. No, no, we like it. Uh, where is magic in all of this? Is she just like whatever? Or well, is she well, the queen she as got well? Her, she got those memories. Uh, magic had given up the rule of limbo to a uh, clone of Jean Grey, Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, I think they thought it would be good for her. It's like, oh, keep, them busy, keep her busy. Give her a job to do. Let's give her this giant power over all these demons. What? What, what could the harm be? What could go wrong? Anyway, that's Dark Web, where I think most people, at least most people reading Spider-Man are really hoping to get this over with and move back on to the main story. Find out what the heck has been going on with Peter and Mary Jane. Okay, so back in the X-World, we'll go right into Sabretooth and the Exiles number three. Written by Victor Laval, art by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rain Berardo, letters by Corey Pettit, design Tom Muller, with... Jay Bowen. Now, in keeping with our weird dose of extradition of putting stories back in order the way we like them, uh, I think we're going to first talk about the parts of this issue that take place on the astral plane, and then we'll go back and talk about the bits that take place on the physical plane. Sound like a plan? Okay, so as everyone I'm sure recalls, our team of exiles fled into the astral plane at the end of the last issue because Orphan Maker had breached his containment suit and something bad was going to happen. We didn't know exactly what. It seemed to have possibly killed uh, Dr. Barrington, or probably not, but somehow going to the astral plane is supposed to help us. Never really explained why. Eh, spoiler, it, it still doesn't really get explained why that helps. Maybe it calms him down. Wave, wave, wave the hands. I don't know. But here we are in the astral plane, and artist Leonard Kirk gives this astral plane a very classic you know, Dr. Strange kind of look, right? Lots of eyeballs and colors. I was going to say, this is maybe the first part where this issue starts to win me over a little bit. Um, and for me, it's because I sort of felt like this is a non-comic writer doing a story and trying to, I don't know, learn how to write comics. This felt more like, okay, this 
this is somebody that knows a little bit about comics. Just in the sense that, like you said, it's got the, and this is probably the artist helping the writer more than the writer, you know, leveling up. But, you know, it looks, it looks like the Doctor Strange astral plane. And you even see the, um, Sanctum, uh, Sanctorum window. Sounds good. Yeah. Right there in that bottom, that bottom right corner. Basically plays into nothing other than just to be like, hey, you know, I know that you could access this place from the Sanctum Sanctorum, which for me, I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah. But I was doing the, uh, the Doctor Strange stuff with Jim, I would actually call the Sanctum Santorum, which is a former senator from Pennsylvania, but that's a whole different thing entirely. Uh, yeah, see, it, it, it does look really cool. And I, I like that then in a couple pages when we see this uh, Orcus energy mining station there in the astral plane, the station looks totally different and out of place, right? It looks very mechanical and gritty and like detailed. Versus this organic, swirly, brightly colored astral plane nonsense around it, which it makes sense because it is something out of place. It's some kind of technology operating in the astral world. So huge credit there to uh, uh, Leonard Kirk for that for that drawing, and also the the colors by Rain Barrett will really also drive home that that dis- distinction. And one thing I'll say for you know credit to the writer, you know they they appear in the astral plane, and there's some kind of I guess attempts at humor about somebody commenting that like being there is making them nauseous and um you know people just kind of poking at each other just commentary i I did like that because again i always need somebody to explain to me like why is the astral plane different than just normal reality and so we've we've seen attempts at that in other books talking about there's no real like distance and things like that in that space we kind of get that again here where basically they say well you know the normal brain can't really operate in this place, so let's go find a place that's got standard physics. It's Third Eye who brought everyone here, and he even says that, yeah, everyone who comes here sees something different, but he's kind of an old-school kind of guy, so he sees astral plane in this old-school kind of way. So that's why it looks different here than, for instance, in Legion of X. Fair enough. So our team of exiles are here in the astral plane. I guess they're just looking for a place to, to work on Peter's armor. So they go to this uh, energy mining station. Uh, and I think it's kind of neat that there's a little continuity nod here. At the end of Laval's first miniseries, we had an Orcus data page listing six of their stations. And these were Station 1, the dungeon. And this was destroyed by Deadpool and Juggernaut in one of those uh, infinite webcomic things. Station 2 is labeled Chimera Protocols. Now, that's not Mr. Sinister Chimera's this is Orcus themselves working chimeras, probably with uh, you know their own version of Mister Sinister. But this is where the physical bodies of the exiles are, and where those mutants are trapped in the cells. That we're going to talk about later on. So that's Station Two. Station Three is labeled Astral Plane Mining, and clearly that's where we are now. Station Four is the Infernal Nursery. We'll hear more about that towards the end of this book. Station Station 5 is listed as misappropriated. And as far as I can tell, we don't know anything about this. Has there been a mention of that that I've missed, Ruben? Any idea? I would also say another kind of tie-in for this. Um, in, was it Way of X? Onslaught was a big villain, right? In that, and they kind of got him from the Astral Plane. So it doesn't weird me out to see Orcus here in the Astral Plane, although it's sort of bizarre that science people would be in the sort of metaphysical realm. Makes sense. Yep, they're they're trying everything to uh, you know, get at those pesky mutants. And but finally though, station six is labeled as recycling, 
And that's that ship that Sabretooth destroyed early on in this miniseries. So that's, we've seen five out of the six somewhere. So five is the only one still kind of not really mentioned. Uh, also there here in the astral plane, Dr. Barrington's creation, creatively named the creation, has been sucked into the astral plane with our group for some reason and kind of just hangs out. It, it seems to be that he can only go back until, only go back there when he's sent back there by third eye until suddenly he gets back there on his own. I don't think that was explained super well. That part's a little weird, but the explanation in the issue makes sense to me. Basically, a third eye brought creation here as well, because otherwise they're going to have a lot of bodies, you know, mutant bodies in the station with a superpowered villain that could just kill you while you're in the astral plane. Fair enough. So our heroes here uh, go to work on Orphan Maker. Well, they're going to, but Orphan Maker just starts to freak out like he does. And, you know, that, that's bad when they're trying to control some sort of a meltdown. Uh, they managed to calm him down by Melter pretending to be Johnny Storm and telling Peter some gossip about, made up gossip about Dr. Doom, which I thought this was kind of amusing. It, it pays yeah, off it that funny. joke that we've seen set up last issue. Uh, they managed to repair Peter's protective armor through kind of a hand-waving page. They're repairing it on the astral plane, but it's his physical armor that was damaged. I don't get it. No. Okay. So let me try to explain this to you. <laughs> I tell you, this is yeah, this is a exact reverse of the last time we covered Sabretooth, where I had no idea what was going on, and you you tried to explain it to me. That's why we're too. <laughs> so you know, Madison Jeffries, whose ability is to create basically anything out of machinery, right, thinks that he can recreate the Orphan Maker suit, but he doesn't know how Nanny made it. So they go to this Station Three. So that Nanny and Madison, basically Nanny could explain to Madison Jeffries, like, this is how the suit works. So that once he's, like, you know, done the virtual assembly in the astral plane, he can, like, port back to the regular world and quickly build a new suit. Okay, so it's like he's a 3D printer, but now he's getting his design schemes all set. And once they're back, that's when they'll actually make the armor. Exactly. And the whole thing about how Orphan Maker is disabled this part is a little weak to me but i kind of laughed because they at least are like we think this sort of works but it sort of sounds bogus to us too um the thought is okay for some reason you take his mind out of his mutant body and it disables his mutant power so while he is on the astral plane i guess you need mind and power together in order to hand wavy <laughs> whatever his, his stupid power is but the We've idea is seen some mutant powers are purely physical some are purely mental and i guess some are you know a little of both and that must be must be peter okay I, that makes more sense now than it than it did when i read it so yeah and the I reason they were trying to calm that. him down on the astral plane is i guess third eye has, a, has to like keep you on the astral plane it exerts will in order for him to keep your mind on the astral plane and Orphan Maker was apparently trying to get back to his body, which I guess is a natural thing that minds do. They try to get out of the astral plane if they're on it. Yeah, apparently I, I missed all those connections. I'm not, maybe I was just today. <laughs> well, I, I read this one second and my mind was already still spinning about Sins of Sinister. Yes, so. fair enough. Blame, blame Kieran Gillen for that. Okay, so while all this is going on that I should have paid more attention to, Oya, Sabretooth, and Toad just go wandering around this mining station. And they find this many-eyed, goopy monstrosity with a feeble, dying, human-appearing figure at its center who, off-panel and just before his death, 
tells Oya that his name is Victor Creed. But, but wait, we already have a Victor Creed. Why? Can we have two characters with the same name? Oh, no, more clones. So, yeah, exactly what's going on with the various and sundry Victor's Creed, it looks like is going to play out in the next couple issues. The best part about this this scene, too, again, more attempts at humor, right, where the villains are there and they're just like, one, they're making, Victor basically gets this person, like, our Sabretooth wakes up this creepy body in the suspended in the gelatinous Chalutha or <laughs> Cthulhu <laughs> monster. Um, so there's jokes about him just being loud and obnoxious and annoying, which I did chuckle at that. But we get this scene where Victor and Toad kind of get into conflict. And this is a callback to the original time that Sabretooth got kicked into the pit. That's true. House of X number one. Yes. They were fleeing with some, I forget, I don't even remember what it was, but some sort it of data. Some plans about the Orcus Forge. Yes. Oh, okay. That's right. They had to get the Orcus Forge plans. Yeah, and then Toad basically like ditched him, and so then he got captured, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Sabretooth stayed behind because he wanted to murder some humans, and that's why you know he got he got caught and he got brought back to Krakoa and was the first person sent into the pit. Yada yada. Too many series about Sabretooth going forward. So again, for me, like I always get a big kick out of like continuity, connectivity, and especially with a writer that doesn't have a track record writing in this universe for me getting some like nods like hey yeah i actually read <laughs> those stories too and and i have a perspective on these characters not you know being happy with each other especially victor right he's always about revenge right he holds the grudge so i was like fist bump yeah he's gonna try to kill toad as soon as he can because yeah and and toad is kind of bitter about the whole pit thing because he got sent down there for something he didn't even do and that was never again super well explained the whole trial of magneto thing why he got to be the you know the guy holding the bag at the end and he says to Victor, if not for your failure, maybe there never would have been a pit. So, you know, just the whole existence of this thing I got sent to, it's all your fault. I get a nice a nice continuity mention. I like that too. Okay, that is our astral plane section of the story. Uh, meanwhile, on the physical plane, the physical bodies of the exile are just flopped around, lying in the middle of a room filled with captive mutants in transparent cells. Uh, the, quote, Barrington coils, unquote, that have been preventing those mutants from using their mutant powers have lost their power. So those two new characters who got names last issue, Bab and Herd, they use their powers to free the rest. Bab has some sort of a teleport through my belly button kind of power, and Herd has some sort of influence groups of people in a kind of moderate, you know, sheepdog yes. kind of a way, really. Yeah, Herd's power is definitely the less cool of the two. I actually liked the Bab teleport thing because it just reminded me of Portal, and I always think that's yeah. Kind it, of sweet it looks uh, a little bit like a cloak from Cloak and Dagger, is what I was thinking. Mm, yeah, that's a good one too. Okay, so now uh, Doctor Barrington was badly injured last issue. She's not dead, but she is all beat up. Uh, you know, this was because of some kind of explosion or melting caused by Orphan Maker taking part of his armor off. Now uh, to add the Orphan Maker's. Orphan Maker's power is to make you Eric Shea's favorite character. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yuck. That is, we don't need to bring back the Mae West burn victim drops. Maybe we do. Okay, so uh, now to add unemployment to injury, uh, Dr. Barrington has been fired by Orcus via this shadowy GC figure. Uh, remember, we speculate that might be Sabretooth's son, Graydon Creed, and GC remotely pushes a button to kind of set off a self-destruct on Barrington's orchestration. So Barrington this finds- part I don't really get. I don't entirely get this. 
because Barrington the interplay has, between them. Yeah, because Barrington has a conversation with like basically he's like I'm going to blow up the station because it's a failure, right? Like and there's always mutants on it. That part I get, but when Barrington appears, then GC's like, yeah, I'm still killing you. That part I don't get, right? Like, isn't Barrington his employee? Like, wouldn't he be like, get off the station, I'm going to blow it up? It made it clear that she's like a contract worker. She's not an employee. She doesn't get benefits or I, I don't know how it all works. But yeah, she's definitely not a real employee. She wants to be a real employee. That's been one of the themes of her letters. And there's some sort of internal politics going on. That'll like probably become like maybe her, more clear when we learn more know. about GC. Okay, so uh, she's surrounded by these now freed and now angry mutants uh, who, you know, clearly don't like her for good reason. She's able to call the creation back from the astral plane. I guess maybe because Third Eye is kind of tired now and can't yes. keep him there. Yes, I'll go with that. Yep. Uh, and the two of them—that's Barrington and Creation—you know—fly off with a plan to go to Orca Station Four which is the one that data page calls the nursery. So that's where we're headed to next. And we also get kind of as an afterthought, another letter telling us about a bad medical thing from real world history. Uh, this one is from GC to Fei Long. Fei Long, remember, is Kelvin Heng, a human who wanted to claim Mars for humanity, but got beaten to the punch by the whole mutant Hellfire Gala thing. He ended up claiming Mars's moon Phobos instead, where he has a nice statue of a dead uh, Kurt because of the things he did. Uh, and he has joined forces with Orcus and is one of their like main vice presidents in charge of operations slash offense. Now, this letter is about some bad doctors who had been hired by the U.S. government to treat Native Americans. And this seems to be based on a Wall Street Journal article from like 2011, so more recent than the other things we've seen. Uh, and these do seem to indeed have been some really bad doctors getting sued for malpractice and just just not doing what they should be doing. For some unclear reasons, GC thinks that these incompetent doctors could provide useful information to Orcus, which seems like a stretch even more than those prior Dr. Barrington letters were. I don't, I, again, I know he, it's like he almost forgot, oh, right, I have a theme. I need to have something about my theme. I'll, uh, here we go, close enough. Now, this letter is signed GC number 299. And I don't know what the 299 is supposed to mean in universe, but I did see pointed out elsewhere that Uncanny X-Men number 299 is where Graydon Creed made his first appearance. So okay. I think that's not that's strong confirmation. <laughs> this is who it is. That's pretty cool, though. I, I saw the 299 and I was like, I don't know what that is. So excited to uh, have somebody else do the research and confirm the speculation. Yeah, that is a nice thing about uh, following the X-Men. There's always someone who's looked up and Googled almost everything. So, you know, I do, a, do wide enough reading and listening, and we, we put it all together for you here. So overall, I didn't think this was a great issue. Uh, the thematic points have gotten more muddled. The second Victor Creed found the plane is <clears throat> excuse me, less shocking, more just confusing. Uh, for me, the highlights are that nifty astral plane art. Uh, and that it's a really cool Ryan Stegman cover showing Sabretooth and Necra fighting amid this swirling red and white checkerboard pattern. It looks very cool. And I'm, I'm hoping that what I, I think this is a five issue mini, hoping that the final two issue of the mini series kind of get a little more focused, find their footing and whatever point Laval's trying to make. I hope he, I hope he sticks to land. So I'm going to give this a six out of 10. Ooh, wow. I am much more positive. I'm going to, I'm going to be at a seven five on this first time i've actually cared about this issue and or i guess this series and what i think it's doing better than it's done in the past is the character work 
is stronger. I finally am recognizing the distinct personalities of these characters. We have some good interplay that's kind of being driven by their personalities, which I didn't particularly sense before. And even some of the the dumb humor, like the you know Melter being mistaken for Johnny Storm, is starting to pay off in the sense that it's getting referenced again. So I, I yeah, much much happier with this one. I actually enjoyed this Sabretooth issue. I'm looking forward to the next one. And um, I want to say that this is a you know top writer for the X universe at this point, but I'm not on the you know get them out of this line. Um, okay, point yeah, f- anymore. for me again, this still feels super inessential, way off on the side. It feels like high quality fan fiction. Yeah, yeah, that's, right? that's as fair. opposed to like uh, X Terminators, which I would call not so high quality fan fiction. Where again, it, it doesn't really feel like these. It doesn't feel so real. It feels like something somebody kind of made up on the side. You don't expect. Well, GC could show up again somewhere. I don't think the creation is showing up in X Men anytime soon. Okay, so that was Sabretooth or Sabretooth and the Exiles, and now on to what I think is pretty clearly our favorite book of the week: Sins of Sinister Number One, Part One. Everything is sinister. Written by Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Werneck. Special guest artists, <gasps> Jeffrey Shaw, Marco Cicchetto, Juan Jose Reap, David Baldeon, Travel Foreman, Carlos Gomez, Federico Vicentini, David Lopez, Joshua Casara, and Stefano Caselli. Oof. Colors by Brian Valenza, just Brian Valenza. Letters by Clayton Cowles, and design by Jay Bowen, just Jay Bowen. Tom Muller, you did nothing here, you get no credit. Uh, so yeah, lots of guest artists here, and I, I think we see where they pop in. Uh, so first, I think we need to acknowledge two things up front. Number one, this is essentially Immortal X-Men number 10, part two, right? It it directly, directly flows out of the end of that from last week. It answers a lot of the questions that you and I had after reading Immortal X-Men number 10. And yeah, it just it very much of that same tone, that same look, the same artist. It's the, it's the other half of the same story. Number two it becomes super, super obvious that 99.99, et cetera, percent of everything that happens here is going to go away, right? Uh, as of right now, this is the main timeline, but it's quite clear that it will soon become just an alternate timeline. Again, a whole lot like the uh, Judgment Day event, where such crazy things happen that you go, yeah, this this is getting retconned. This is, this is not going to stand. But it's still going to be fun. Yeah. So it is unfortunately going to be an all universe story, but the good news is it's going to be a fun one. So I think it's, I'm still on that axis kind of ultimately more positive about this series than I expected to be. Yeah. One, one nice thing is that Sinister's plan is now perfectly clear, right? We, we had, we had questions about what he did and now we know he had tried to pollute the Krakoan resurrection process from day one. All of the mutant DNA samples he had ever provided, they all had bits of his own DNA secretly mixed in. And there's some some waving about, yeah, they they checked, but he's a better geneticist than they are, so he was able to hide it. That's fine. He's he's Mr. Sinister. I believe he can hide DNA wherever he wants to hide DNA. Yeah, I'm fine with that as well. So every mutant who's ever resurrected, all the way back to like Cyclops and Wolverine who died attacking the Orcus Forge, should have been a sinister sleeper agent from the beginning. Why didn't that happen? It was hope. We had talked about, a lot about actually, about how vague and slippery her mutant power is by design. She can borrow powers, she can amplify powers, but she's not just Sink or like Fabian Cortez who affects powers. She has this kind of ineffable something else. 
And we're told that when she was part of the resurrection process, which she had been for every resurrection until she needed to be resurrected, she unconsciously removed all of the sinister DNA that should have gone into the resurrected mutants. A, a little convenient, but okay, she's already so vague and confusing that why not? And that's why Sinister needed her dead. She, he wanted some other people to be dead too, but needed her number one for his plan to work at all. So Sink was able to replicate the power amplifying part of Hope's power, but he did not replicate that little uh, je ne sais quoi, that little, <laughs> little something else. I see. I I got I got compliments on my my German last time, so now I'm going French. Yeah, uh, let's yeah. Do it. So uh, when the victims of Sinister's attack, the Quine cows were brought back. They didn't have Hope filtering out the yuck. They were brought back as Sinisters, as you know, infected by his DNA, as part of his plan, as thralls to him. However you want to say it, you know, they're not quite themselves. What I think is interesting here is they don't really seem to be thralls per se. They just seem to yeah. to be kind of sinister leaning, and that to me, I think, is the most interesting part about this. Is he and I and I guess this is sort of true of what we've seen of you know Bar Sinister, right? There's always there are these clones, but sometimes they get uppity and overthrow the dominant yeah, clone. Again, way back in in uh, House of X, it must have been, however, his House or Powers, but you know, way back in that series where you see that there are all these different Mister Sinisters, and I think one kills another. And then even in Hellions, we saw we had two Mr. Sinisters there, not really on the same page. So yeah, it starts off here like they're all working for Mr. Sinister, but we'll see, especially in the plus 10 year time frame, they're not exactly 100%. Yeah, they line. seem to share a common agenda, but they're not, you know, they're not subservient to the master, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So now that Hope herself is you know, sinister, I'm just going to say that, yeah, she is sinister. Uh, she's in on the plan. Every resurrected mutant is brought back also with a sinister DNA. So anybody who dies comes back on Team Sinister. So the first two pages of this book really set the tone for just how much fun it's going to be. I, I love this. It's maybe a cheap gag, but I, I guess I'm a cheap date because I laughed. These are panel by panel recreations of those first two pages of House of X number one. That was the first time we saw the mutant resurrection process when we didn't really understand what it was we were seeing. The difference here is that the figure of Professor X has been replaced, of course, by Mr. Sinister, and instead of, to me, my X-Men, he says, to me, my me's. And I, didn't e I wasn't even upset by the apostrophe that doesn't really belong there because it, it's so much, fun, so much fun. So I wonder if we're not, again, maybe not quite knowing exactly what we're seeing here because these pages are labeled as being in that plus 10 years time frame. This isn't right away, and it's not clear to me where this scene takes place compared with some other the plus 10 years scenes, and that could turn out to be important. Like, is this before or after Sinister finds out that things have gone wrong for him? So I'm, I'm going to keep thinking about that. I, just another kind of just fun thing is the, the clones that are coming out, they're all sort of Scott Summers clones, right? There's three of them, so apparently he no longer has yeah, even the issue of, of bringing back, you know, one copy of a person. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that yet. We stayed, they all have the same, like, body and hair, and two of them have the little gleaming eye beams starting to poke out. So he, he always did love those, those, uh, that summer family, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. So that's partially why I like it. Okay. Some other things we learn is that these sinisterized mutants can choose to display or to hide their red forehead diamond, right? We wondered, is it just a thing he sticks on? No, it is like 
biological and inherent, but at least the clones can choose to show it or not. So at least for this beginning part of the plan, they were all going to hide it because, you know, secret, secret. We learned that it really was the actual Mr. Sinister last time who presumably allowed himself to be caught and allowed himself to be sent into the pit for the year. All part of the plan. Something we haven't seen in any of this are any of those other Nathaniel Essex clones with those other suits on their heads. No no clubs, hearts, or spades to be seen. No hint of them. So are they going to be part of this event, but they're being held back as a surprise? Or are those being saved for something entirely I think separate? I think they'll be addressed because there are sort of very loose references to them in this issue where Nathaniel talks about having to go after his other selves at some point, but he's having too much fun with just taking over Krakow and the world. So I, I think they will eventually get to that. But for now, this is more he's about him He takes over. care of every other possible threat, so much so that it's it's glaringly obvious that they're not talking more about those other Sinisters. Okay, so into the timeline. In the plus zero, meaning like the same year as Immortal X-Men number 10, you know, Sinister kills Hope, Xavier, Emma, Exodus. They wind up replaced by Sinister-infected versions of themselves. Sinister gets tossed into the pit. So... After that, the Sinister Sleeper agents confer among themselves, but in public hide what's happened to them. There's this kind of cool scene where they set up ahead of time that they're going to pretend like they're fighting with each other, just like the regular Quiet Council, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and they manipulate the Council to agree to share immortality with the humans. Hmm. But you know, some of the Quiet Council are already all about anyway. So it's like the the good mutants, the Kitty Pride type mutants. They are super easy to convince to go down this route. Now, uh, plus one year, we learn that sharing immortality requires each human to allow the implantation of a, quote, limited X gene. And just implanting this gene, boom, makes that human a sinister sleeper agent. No resurrection required. We just install it. And we don't learn the details. We don't need to know the details. We're going pretty quick here. So... We see that Ben Urich, that reporter, was investigating and had the basics correct, although he doesn't know it's a Mr. Sinister thing. He just knows that something's wrong. He knows that the implanted gene creates, quote, a kind of parapersonality, and you can be taken over it by any time, and also that it, even if it doesn't fully take over, it warps your behavior and, and pushes your worst instincts. And it was a kind of a fun scene with J. Jonah Jameson. Where at first I thought that, oh, Jonah's not, not really being written in character. I'm surprised Gillen, you know, wasn't better at this. And then it turns out to be a Mr. Sinister J. Jonah, and it all makes perfect sense. And I retroactively love that scene. <laughs> yeah, the best part about that is just, just clever, like, what's going on, right? So Ben, uh, what's his name? It's not Ben Riley. Um, Yurk, thank you. Ben Yurk has a, I guess, a, some kind of test, right? Like a gun. So he goes up to JJ and he's like, I got to shoot you with this this needle to make sure that you're not a clone. And then it turns out that the test was was developed by Sinister, right? Just to get people. Yeah, it's supposed to be like that <laughs> test in the thing where you see if the people have been, you know, taken over by, you know, that alien thing. But here it's just very quick. Yeah. Oh, it, it shows you're a human, shows you're not infected. But yeah, Sinister thought about that. We don't see any of the details. I mean, another writer might have made you know this a whole issue, right? This could have been a whole tie-in series following Ben Urich trying to track things down. That's not what the series is doing. So that was good. Yeah, but just just cool. I like the idea of like, hey, leak a fake 
cure, right? To like mm-hmm. get the people that it does seem like are not taking Gillen the meds. had a list of here are all the things that people might say, ah, but that's where you'd be stopped. Here's where it could go wrong. And he just like in one, two page little scenes checks them all off. Thought of that, thought of that, thought of that, thought of that. Okay. So by this time, a lot of the mutants, you know, especially the important ones, Forge, Beast, Wolverine, are all on Team Sinister. We don't know how they got killed and brought back. Doesn't matter. And I think a lot of the superheroes, just a quick pause, if you look at the, the last panel of the Yurk JJ scene, you've got JJ looking out the window and there's two skyscrapers with a bunch of webbing in between it and like a Spider-Man hanging underneath it. Yes. And do you see the shape of the middle of that Spider-Man's yes, diamond? Web? It yep. is a diamond. That's what I'm saying. Yes. So, yeah, so you've got even some heroes converted. We can Again, we don't need to know all the details. But we just see that Sinister is spreading and taking over the whole world. So uh, another thing to take care of is Krakoa itself, right? Krakoa is this very intelligent island mutant who has its own goals and, and purposes. And you know, Sinister doesn't like anyone having goals that aren't his. So the Sinister Forge builds an orbital cannon that does to Krakoa what was done to Jack Nicholson at the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, it's still alive. It just doesn't have a mind or personality anymore. We even sometimes see like it's it's like kind of slumped over, drooling face, which is so sad. But so it's it's still alive. It's not like the island dies because that would be bad for everyone who lives there. But it's completely pliable. It's not going to get in the way. Also, to make double use of this, the mutants blame this attack on Orcus. And they tell the humans that, oops, at the same time, that same attack also deleted all those human psychic imprints. So all your dead relatives who we were going to bring back, sure, we're going to do it any day now, they're gone forever. So everyone's mad at Orcus. Orcus had been getting some good PR at the end of Judgment Day. That's gone. The humans, the superheroes, all turn against them. Uh, Tony, Reed, and Forge create a virus that can overcome Nimrod. Boy, Nimrod turned out to go down quick here. We thought he was going to be tougher. Uh, I'm not sure what happens to Robo Moira. Is she dead or is is she still out there somewhere? Yeah, unclear. I mean, she's encouraging Nimrod to flee and he's saying no more fleeing, right? Makes me think that she did flee. Could be. She could come back as another possible antagonist in the series. Uh, And in the aftermath of this, Cyclops... Sinister Cyclops talked some of the Avengers into also taking that mutant gene for reason of symbolic unity, but also, hey, having the Avengers on Team Sinister would be pretty useful. Now they have Wolverine kill Doug so that Doug can be brought back to Sinister. Need everybody to be Sinister. Uh, and at this point, the Sinisterized Quiet Council has enough control that they can free Sinister himself from the pit. Forge, quote, induces a parastaltic wave which is a fancy way to say that he makes Krakoa puke Sinister back up, which, ew, gross, but, you know, very accurate. And I do wonder, what was it like for him down there, like, before and after Krakoa got its brain zapped, right? We saw what happened with, with Sabretooth, if that is even canonical over in these other books, don't know. But what was his experience like, especially after Krakoa was now brain dead? Was he just hanging out there on, by himself and Maybe Sinister being all by himself, he probably doesn't mind that too much. It seems like he was able to observe it. I mean, he talks about you know observing up at close and personal, whereas before he was seeing it, I guess, under from underground. So it seems like he had some kind of access to what was going on to watch the plan unfold. Okay, so now we do learn Sinister's ultimate goal. He doesn't just want to run things because he, he's Mr. Sinister. 
He wants to take over all the earth for a purpose of moving towards dominion status, ASAP. Now, dominion is one of those Hickman big ideas from Powers of X. A whole lot of confusing details about that if you want it. But the bottom line is he doesn't just want to be immortal. He wants to, quote, transcend this stinking reality, become something significantly more profound than a god outside time and space. And then next on his to-do list is gloat because he's Mr. Sinister. (laughs) And this is a cool throwback to that further adventure story, right? Where they talked about um, there being a fear of like, you know, humanity essentially being overrun by, you know, technology. And the whole Dominion idea, I think, plays on that, right? It's essentially a super society that like controls an entire uh, galaxy. Or is it universe? Anyway, I think it's a galaxy. Yeah, like Milky Way galaxy. Like once you can harness and control the power of a sun within your own galaxy then you're a dominion and the fear is that any dominion that comes to like our galaxy is just going to completely wipe us out because we will have, you know our power will be on well, such as it'll be like a, small a scale or a slug in comparison to yes. them right yes. we don't even count yeah the phalanx are a dominion race if that helps anyone oh so he wants he wants to be like phalanx level himself now he doesn't expect to get there all at once but the nice thing is that the moira engine will let him take all the knowledge he gains from each run and start over like that much more ahead of the game, right? So next time, which he's still on his first run, we find out, but the next time he does this, when he, if he needs to go back and, and reset a Moira, he'll already know so much that he'll be able to go that much faster next time. So that eventually, and he'll have 10 cracks at this, he thinks he'll be able to get to that Dominion status before before he runs into any major troubles. Okay, uh, another sad thing, uh, Psycat and Professor Plod have died in the year that he went away. Uh, which seems awful quick for them to just turn completely into skeletons. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you die and decompose, you'd probably be a skeleton somewhat fast. A- anyways, doesn't uh, matter. Anyway, I, I, I'm surprised he didn't have the computer set up to feed them. You know, like uh, Back to the Future, Einstein had that automatic food thing from, uh, from the dock. Oh, well, I guess Mr. Sinister doesn't really care about that. He can always create new copies anyway. Okay, now things really speed up. We have these sequence of uh, splash pages showing how various threats to Sinister are dealt with. And this is where those guest artists come in. I don't know who did what, but they do all look pretty cool. Okay, so I'm going to run through these pretty quick. Ruben, if you want to talk about any of them, stop me and we'll chat. Okay, first up, Thanos is still out there from the end of Eternals. He's like lost on the time stream, but anytime you have a Thanos who could come back, that's a problem. So what do you do? You turn Juggernaut into a bullet and Hope fires Juggernaut from a temporal cannon right through Thanos' brain. Thanos is dead. Juggernaut is not retrieved. He's still going out at the speed of light somewhere. Really gross. Next, Namor and Doom. Namor was compromised after a tryst with Emma Frost, which we see, we saw that he had some interest in her, so that makes sense. Uh, Doom tries to team up with Namor against Krakoa. He knows something weird is happening, but Sinister Namor kills Doom and replaces him with a clone. We are told that a rogue Doombot is still out there working with the last remnants of Orcus. I think that might be important going forward. Kind of cool, too. Just just uh, for me personally, the, uh, my interests, the 2099 universe with 2099 Doom talked about there being like a Doom clone, or sorry, a Doombot clone, that basically is the one in the future. So it's kind of a cool little synergy there it's probably not even a connection but just one that i'm making up in my head that it counts we we, we uh, write that down okay next the eternals 
Uh, you know, they're a strong bunch of people or creatures. They could mess things up. Uh, Krakoa fakes another, well, they fake another attack on Krakoa, this time from the Eternals. It's a good enough fake to get Arako to join in and also go to war against the Eternals. The Iraqi use their one hour of Oranos and put him to effective use. You know, he likes killing Eternals. Uh, Oranos survives, but it seems that all the other Eternals are probably dead. We see that among the Iraqi taking part are the Fisher King, Weaponless Zen, and Korra. Now remember, none of the Iraqi are going to be sinisterized because they don't hold with that whole resurrection thing. I'm kind of curious how these, you know, smart, wise, perceptive characters were tricked by the Sinisters, but we don't have time for that. Yeah, I mean, this is the era before they're all walking around with their red triangles proudly. So, I guess not triangles, but red diamonds proudly. So I'm fine with that, right? This is a point when Storm's still on the council, and, like, to them, this is just another nation that they're kind of allied with that has issues. All right, moving forward. Next, the Fantastic Four. Uh, This is one of the lesser ones, I think. Ben Grimm gets compromised. Uh, He takes the other FF through some more cosmic rays, and Ben chokes Reed to death. Eh. Didn't know the point of that one. I was like, okay. (laughs) I think it's just because, oh, just to get them off the board. Uh, Finally, the Avengers... Another page that didn't look so great to me, uh, the human members of this team are already compromised with the X-Gene, but not the aliens like Captain Marvel. So sinister Steve Rogers makes the Avengers do all sorts of bad stuff, including murder the president and seize power so that the X-Men can swoop in, uh, kill off the Avengers and become Earth's favorite heroes. I thought that like Rogue and Carol in particular look like kind of chibi versions of themselves. It's just... Again, All the it's, it's just pages a, a very for quick me. wave, get them off, get the Avengers out of the way, we're not worrying about them. Yeah. The Steve Rogers face is just really bizarre. I keep staring at it, and it's like, it almost looks like a zombie version of him. It's, the colors are weird. It's it's strange. But the Avengers are off the board. That's all that this page really needs to do. Okay, now we're at five years later, after the whole Immortal X-Men number 10. Uh, so the Quiet Council now, we can see, is Charles, Hope, Magic, Beast, Exodus, Namor, Kate, Emma, Shaw, Kurt, Colossus, and Storm. Now, Colossus is interesting. I guess we're not going to worry about the whole Chronicler thing in this story. Maybe Mikhail Rasputin and his team are already killed or subverted. I I think, again, that's just a story that's going to be told somewhere else. But we can presume that everyone here besides Storm is on Team Sinister. So it's taken quite some time. Storm, who hasn't died, has no Sinister gene finally catches on that, hey, something's not right here. I thought she was smarter than that, but again, this is how we need to tell the story. Uh, she catches on that the Kurt on the council with her is not her, her real buddy Kurt, not acting, acting right. And at this point, Sinister, who likes to be dramatic, walks out with a real Kurt, and uh, Kurt's little horn problem has has progressed a lot, right? He's, he's like a, a dinosaur now. So this really feels like it was a mistake for Sinister to reveal himself like this, right? Because he could have tried to kill off Storm more quietly. We need to, I guess, assume he's tried and failed over and over again. But uh, yeah, he reveals himself. Uh, Storm is able to escape because she had this deal with Laktuka with an implanted fail-safe phrase. Maybe important. The phrase is, you make sure, that links Storm's mind with Laktuka's infinite ocean mind and so that the psychics can't control her. She flies off. She ends up going to Peru, where Destiny and Mystique are waiting for her with that whole seeing the future thing. So now they're kind of a little sub-team on their own. And what, what do you think about that? The team-up is interesting, 
but I also want to I also want to say kudos to the work that's been done on the Storm character of late, where she's kind of become the ultimate badass, right? Like this does to me seem like a real threat to this. You know, half the world is compromised, but not Storm, right? Which maybe it's kind of a ridiculous thing to say, right? At this point, like how much of a threat could she really be? But I I just gotta kind of believe that Team Storm, right? She seems like she is pretty much the ultimate unstoppable force. And so to your point, right, like Sinister should not have come out and gloated to her because uh, it's going to get real. <laughs> so I, I like it. And then as far as the actual team up in Peru, you know, I'm interested in what, you know, Destiny and Mystique are up to. This does really fe- feel like, um, you know, the the rebels against the Empire kind of thing where. Oh, 100% sure. Yeah. Like, I can't believe that they could actually fight back, but but maybe. Remember, we saw Destin Mystique leave at the end of Immortal Number 10, and I do wonder why they left instead of Destiny tipping anyone else off. Again, it must be that she saw all the possible futures and this was the best one, but it does seem strange. I mean, I'm okay with this, right? Destiny does what Destiny does. It's not always clear. And we remember that she is trying to find a future that has Mystique in it, right? And to date, she keeps seeing the future without Mystique. So maybe... Maybe she saw a way where she could have defeated Nathaniel by doing that, but then that led to the outcome without Mystique. That works. I like that uh, I like that explanation. Okay, now we get some more splash pages. Uh, here we have uh, Shaw wants to become Krakoa's emissary to, quote, the various hells. Turns out you can't do that unless you own a hell of your own, so they turn the waiting room into a hell for Shaw to be in charge. Sucks to be any of the mutants waiting there. Yeah, now, and also, I again, I appreciate the nod to that, right? We haven't really, we were kind of curious, like, is Gillen going to touch the idea of there being a waiting room? And it's nice that he's just like, yep, <laughs> there is, and I turned it into hell. <laughs> Which, I'm not going to say it deserves it, but I'm not going to not say that either. Okay, so with that deal made, Magic borrows the Twilight Sword from Muspelheim, that's like the hell version of the, the Nine Realms with Asgard, uh, that's where Surtur and the Fire Demons live. And she uses that sword to maybe not exactly destroy Asgard, but knock it off into space where Thor is not going to be the problem anymore. Can I uh, throw out some baseless speculation? So I like the idea of the waiting room getting turned into hell because, in theory, that's where Eric is, right? And I would assume that maybe mm. Magneto is happy to you know, live in his Valhalla you know, sacrifice world that doesn't feel like he needs to come back to reality. But this could be a trigger, right? That, like you're, you're chilling be. out in yeah. the waiting room and all of a sudden it turns into hell. You're like, what the F is going on? <laughs> <laughs> that that could be an excuse for him to, you know, break his promise because he's needed because clearly things have gone gone wrong there. That, that could work. Yeah, I hope so. Okay, next page. No more Wanda. Uh, just in case. No details given. Seems a lot like that orbital cannon king thing, uh, orbital cannon thing that killed Krakoa. Doctor Strange in the background. Looks like he survives, but... Wanda's not going to save the day here. Moving on. Uh, the the Xavier School is turned into Sinister's main lab for him to work on chimeras. We see a Colossus slash Beast, a Cyclops slash Wolverine, a Rockslide slash Sunfire, I guess. And maybe that's that Kitty Pride slash Angel. I don't know. Kitty Pride with some kind of wings, at least. Yeah, a little mystical. That's the part that's a little weird to me. But Right. It could be just her fading in and out thing acting on the wings. I see. I, I'm that not sure. Sense. Or it could yeah. be a third could be a third uh, winged person as well. But we're also told that pollution from this facility is lowering life expectancy all across the eastern seaboard. Okay, they try they do try to kill Storm again. Uh 
on Mars, they'd succeed in blowing up the entire planet of Mars using a Legion clone injected into the planet's core. Uh, we see some of our favorite X-Men Red characters, Sobunar, Sunspot, Thunderbird, Wrong Slide, good old Wrong Slide, and Storm herself. We don't know if any of them survive other than Storm. We are told later on that Storm is still around, but the planet's gone. And presumably most of the X-Men Red characters too. I guess we'll find out what about that in, in Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants series coming up. That is the end of the plus five-year period, and we're near the end of the book. Fine, it's a long book. It's like a 40-plus page book. Now we're at plus 10 years. So the, the Sinisters are completely in charge of the world. It seemed to be almost without serious challenge. There are still Orca's remnants out there somewhere, and there's Storm, and there's these various space empires that they know will be coming for them, right? The, I don't know if these are the Shi'ar and the Kree, anybody else, but some kind of, some kind of, you know, big space powers aren't going to be happy about what's going on on Earth. Yeah. Could be the brood. Yeah. So Sinister himself wants to lean into science because that's what this is all about. And he wants to get as much science done so that he can then reset the whole universe, uh, add it to his blob of science and do it again and get closer to his dominionhood. And this is where the rest of the Sinisterized Quiet Council shows they're not entirely in agreement with him. They still have their own goals and personalities. Uh, and I mean, they, they, they show their personalities in one very stereotypical panel here, right? Professor X, hey, I've got a dream. Emma, all about protecting children. Exodus is on a crusade. Hope talks about being a messiah. Very, very quick versions of saying, by the way, we don't just work for you. They want to fight off the spam, despite fight off the space empires, and they win the vote. I guess it's still somehow kind of a democracy. There. So Sinister acts like he's playing along, but this is, of course, unacceptable for him. It's going to be time to reset things. Things have yes. just gone off the rails enough. Reset the Moira engine, do things a little bit differently next time, hold a little tighter control. So he goes back to Muir Island, Muir Island, I can never say that right, where he left his lab, and it's gone. <laughs> no lab, no no Mr. Professor Plod, no Psycat, no <laughs> nothing. It's totally cle cleaned out. Yeah. No way to reset the timeline. He's he's stuck. He's trapped. Yes. I also have to say, just just kudos to Kieran Gillen on the humor. I, I just love the way he writes Sinister, right? The, the vote page turn was hilarious to me, where he's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. <laughs> it is good, <laughs> the next yeah. panel, he's like, well, that could go to hell. <laughs> Yes, he, he accepts, he actually says, here's a quote, of course, that makes sense, a toast to this brand new age. And turn page, well, that can go to hell. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no no honor among Sinisters, which is yes. not a surprise. So the big it's question here- It's hilarious he keeps making mm -hmm. the same damn mistake, right? <laughs> like, dude, why do you always give them autonomy and free will? Uh, but he can't help himself, right? I suppose not. I, I guess they needed to be- able to still portray their their, their pre-sinisterized selves to trick people for a while. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Yep. But the big question here is, so who stole Sinister's lab? Was it the other Quiet Council members? That could be it, right? They're Sinister's too. They can be tricky. Was it Destiny? Destiny Mystique. Mystique. Yep. Uh, could be was Storm. It? Could be that. Maybe that's what the other Sinister's- That's what I was going to say, the other Sinister's. Yep. The, the clubs and the hearts and the spades. Yep. Maybe they're watching them. some stuff going down and they're like, nope. Yeah, so that's the the big. I mean, we got a lot of questions answered, but Gillum did a really good job of ending with giving us a brand new question that I certainly didn't expect. 
That was that was a twist that that uh, surprised me. Now we get the checklist. Uh, you know, we see the year ten. We have three issues. Year one hundred, three issues. Year one thousand, three issues. And I just noticed here that the what would be the Omega issue in a standard Marvel series is called Sins of Sinister: Colon Dominion Number One. Now I know I read that title previously, but that word Dominion has some real extra resonance now, and that's that's pretty clever. So this is all going to be reset at some point, right? Presumably the Moira engine is going to be involved, maybe in a way that destroys the Moira engine to you know wrap up this whole uh, subplot, subchapter of Mr. Sinister being able to go around in circles, because that's got to end at some point. But so many questions. Will Sinister's scheme become known in the reset timeline? Maybe it breaks the engine, but nobody knows what happened, so he's still on the Quiet Council, but can't do anything? Will the DNA still be back in all the resurrectees? Or is he just going to be totally out of the story? Will he be defeated and kicked off the island? Who knows? Yeah. And this could even call the you know attention of the phalanx to Earth, right? They see this uh, society evolving so quickly, right? Yeah, I mean, that is... Basically, what's happening is they know those those space empires. The phalanx is, you know, not exactly a space empire, but you know, pretty much just a bigger one. Uh, so, what are these three new temporary series going to be like? I think we have a, a little bit better idea now. So, Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants, oh, pretty obvious, right? That's going to be Storm, you know, trying to get revenge on Sinister for you know all the bad things that he's done. Uh, immoral X Men. I would guess this is going to be following Sinister trying to fix his Moira problem, his lab problem. And the other one's called Nightcrawlers. That's what Legion of X becomes. And that's what's the mystery to me because Nightcrawler himself is that dinosaur creature. So I don't know what that's going to be, but we'll we'll find that out eventually. Any any guesses? Yeah, that's probably going to be the more like slice of life, what's going on if you're in this world that's been created by Sinister. Maybe we'll see some more Ben Yurik. I also want to call out the, the, the time jumps, year 10, year 100, year 1000. It mm-hmm. kind of mirrors the Hawks Pox. Absolutely. Time jumps. Yeah. And in the year 1000, that's when the Phalanx shows up in the Hawks Pox era. So I think they're going to tie into right that on a little time. bit. Yep. Yeah. So I, there's a, a, a pretty satisfying story. A little indulgent, right? He kind of does some fan service kind of things. Very quickly, hand-wavingly takes care of a lot of things. But again, I don't. I didn't want to see a whole issue about each of these. It's, it's a, it really, we know what the tone of this is. It's not a super serious, you know, Civil War II kind of a thing. It's not gritty. It's not supposed to be important. It's supposed to be fun. And yeah. I didn't really need to see an issue of the X Men, the sinisterized X Men fighting the Avengers, right? I, one panel just showing that it happened was fine for me. That's not the interesting bit. The interesting yeah, bit, it, like it's you said, fun is for us to sit back and speculate. Oh, I wonder what happened there, and we can make up whatever story we want. And Kieran Gillen doesn't really care. Yeah, no, this is great. I it is different, interesting, and raises questions. I, I, it's going to go crazy, right? Because, like you said, it's not going to persist forever. But there could be some things that are cool that yeah, st- that come out of this. There's going to be some some things about this are going to affect the rest of the books, and how big or small they are. We don't know, but it's fun to think about. So yeah, I, I like this book a lot. It, I didn't think it was as clever and like kind of perfectly made as Immortal Number Ten. I thought that was just a super well crafted comic book. Where this was, it's a little more loosey goosey, a little more throw this in, throw that in. Still a lot of fun. The the art looked good. Made made nice use of those uh, guest artists to just kind of 
I'm sure just the correspondence there was, here's a crazy thing to draw, go nuts. And they they went for it. You know, a couple of those we didn't we didn't like as many as the others, but most of them were, were really solid. So overall, I'm going to give Sins of Sinister number one an eight point five out of ten. Yeah, that's it. that's sort of where I was coming in. I was going to go eight eight because I thought it was better than a standard eight five story. But um, yeah, it's good. I'm happy to be reading this, and it's cool to be excited about another event, right? It is. I mean, some parts of it are a little bit too similar. To Judgment Day that just happened, just in the idea that these huge things happening, killing off major characters in ways that we know was going to get undone. It kind of feels like he just did a, a, an event where everything gets undone, and it's only a couple months later, and kind of here we go again. But this one is fun in a different way. Yeah. It's got Flashpoint vibes in my mind, if you're into the DC stuff. And I really enjoyed Flashpoint, so um, I expect to enjoy this. And I'm I'm kind of interested in seeing these alt worlds. Just I do get a kick out of some of the Chimera um, characters, and uh, yeah, I want to see Storm kick some butt. <laughs> it <laughs> does really seem said. like yeah, she's going to be the one who who wins in the end. It does seem like it's all headed towards that. I hope. I, I if you look on like the X spoilers tag on Twitter, there's a lot of uh, I'm going to use the phrase not native to my dialect. Yas queen. A lot, a lot of yas queening going on regarding Storm. And as you can tell, I'm, I'm not super comfortable with that. That's not yeah. a thing I typically say. Yeah. So if it is going to be Storm who saves the day, great. I hope it's done in a, a clever way and not just, oh, of course she wins because she's Storm and she's the, the you know the baddest whatever who's ever been. Like I, I want it to be clever. And maybe it'll be a twist and maybe it won't be her who wins. Yeah. Well, I thought the idea of her not giving her some protection against the mind control stuff through a connection with Lacturna was pretty cool. It was, yeah. And it, it was through a character who which she should be connected to, and that makes perfect sense. And we don't I know if Lacturna is still alive. Yeah. I think Eric's going to come back. That's I'm going to go out there. That's going to be my my hot take. I'm going to take the other side of that bet. I don't, I don't think he's going to come back yet. I think they need to have him off the board a while longer. So I don't think he's going to show up at all in this event. That's my position. All right. Your safe so, position. Uh, looking looking towards next week. Well, no Sins of Sinister book next week. Uh, starting February 8th and onward, we'll have one Sins of Sinister book most weeks through the end of April. While we have the other books, <clears throat> X-Men, X-Force, Wolverine, all those things continue as usual. But what we do have next week, well, we have the Dark Web finale, so you'll find out what happens to King Chasm. Uh, we have Legion of X number 10, which was supposed to have come out before Sins of Sinister. You know, shipping, things got out of order. <clears throat> Maybe there'll be something in there pointing towards where uh, Nightcrawler is going to go. Maybe not. And we also have X-Force number 37. Uh, the cover teases the question, who is the man with a peacock tattoo? Now, I had speculated that maybe that guy is going to take off his mask and going to be the remaining Mr. Sinister. Maybe we'll find out next week. Maybe it's just teasing us some more. But until then, and hopefully by then, I can tell I've been talking too long today because my voice is just about gone. So we're going to call it a day. Uh, but it has been a good week. Thank you, everyone, for showing up and listening. Thank you, Ruben, as always, for being a big part of this. Everyone, check out the website, check out the Twitter, check out the Patreon. Do all those things. And hey, Ruben, what do we always say at the end of every episode of Weird Dose of X? Go read more X-Men comics. Bye-bye.